0: Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard, and me, Jim Cunningham.
1: Hey there, Jim. Hi, Chano, How are you? I'm good. It's it's, uh, the bells are ringing. It's season two, episode 24, a.k.a. 224. We are reading the final chapter of The Bullet Catch, which means... This is it. I
0: can't, I'm, I'm I really able to contain my emotion. Uh, this is,
1: but it's, it's episode 24, but it's chapter 26. I can't. That's I can... not going to be an issue after this. So let's just, let's just take that as read. And yes, we're wrapping up the season with a fantastic interview that ties everything together so nicely. It really we've, does. We've got the one, the only Lance Burton. Um, You know, Eli has spent the whole season working as a magician on a movie set, uh, so it makes real good sense to have a magician who's not only been on movie and TV sets, but who also wrote and directed and starred in his own movie. Oh,
0: and that movie is the delightfully fun and silly Billy Toppett master magician. I don't know. Did you ever see Lance on stage? I in, did years ago. Vegas, Yeah. Long, long ago. time ago. I did too it was he was a god on stage not the yeah. god a god with a small g but mm-hmm. he was so good and so absolutely mystifying in absolutely everything he did what a what a great performer and and what an amazing guest you have lined up for us here.
1: I'm so pleased that he's willing to come on and talk about Billy Toppett. As we mentioned in the last episode, uh, and we did put out a link, so maybe some of you have already seen it. If not, I recommend you do go to Amazon and see it. It is just a silly fun fest of a movie. It's a family movie. That's what he wanted to make, and gosh darn it. He did. He did, yeah. In the, in the best sense of the word, like like the old uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons where the kids are laughing at one thing and the parents are laughing at something else.
0: Exactly. You know what it reminded me uh, 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 in watching it? It reminded me of uh, like the television show, The Monkees. It had that yeah. same sort of, you know, frenetic, yes. fun. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure where we're going, but I'm enjoying the ride kind of quality to it. But uh, I, I think... If you've got kids, this is a great afternoon to to spend with Lance Burton watching Billy Toppett, master Magician.
1: Oh, what's interesting is despite having made a number of TV specials and actually acting on an episode of Night Rider, Lance didn't have a ton of movie making experience before he started Billy Toppett. So um before we dive into Billy Toppett, had you worked as a consultant on movies in the past?
2: Well, no. I, I've worked a couple of times over the years trying to teach actor friends to do magic uh, for stage shows or plays or, or things like that. And then while we were shooting Billy Toppet, uh, I was hired to be the magic consultant on Oz the Great and Power Film. So I had to teach James Franco to do magic. And most of the magic he did was in the beginning of the movie when he was still in Kansas. But he was a very good student and did a good job. And and uh, it was a really fun experience. And I spent about a month on the set in uh, Michigan when they were filming that movie.
1: Did that have any impact on, on how you made Billy Toppett, having spent a month on a, on a bigger well, budget set? It
2: was, a, it was an interesting uh, experience because uh, I actually shut down production on Billy Toppett to go and work. Uh, I thought, well, this would be a good experience to, to go and, and, as you say, be part of a big budget movie. So Oz the Great and Powerful, there, there, was, there was maybe three or 400 people there on set with all the actors and the extras and the crew. And there was, there was, there was armies of people building sets. Uh, they, have, they had sound stages up there near uh, Pontiac, Michigan. And I think there were seven or eight giant sound stages and they were building sets in all of them. And, and we'd start shooting on stage one and, and shoot there for a week. And as soon as we were done, we'd move to stage two and they would start tearing that one apart and building a new set. So, so they were just sort of working their way around to all the sound stages. It was really amazing. Almost like magic. Yeah.
0: Let's talk just a bit about, before we dive into Billy Toppett, which I enjoyed immensely. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think movies have portrayed magicians in the past, Lance?
2: It's 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 all over the all over the board. Uh, a lot of times when I go see a movie that that has a magician as a lead character, frequently I'm very disappointed by the magic. You know, because in my mind I'm thinking, you know, well they could have done this scene a lot better, they could have done that a lot better. But I'm looking at it. I'm too close to the, the subject matter. You know, I'm I'm sort of inside the ballpark looking at it. Well, the the first time that I got to do a television drama and play a magician was on a Knight Rider. And that was uh, about 1985. And I played the part of uh, Austin Templeton, who was this uh, magician slash uh, assassin. Uh, (laughs) That was, that was part of the plot. And uh, the producers on that show were great. They hired me, you know, obviously knowing that I was a professional magician, and right up front, Bert Armis, uh, the lead producer on the show said to me, Lance, just, just put as much magic as you can in this. Even if there's a scene where there's no magic, you can be, you know, rolling a coin on your fingers or doing something. We just want to keep it interesting. So they just sort of gave me carte blanche and I went through the script and it was, the script was very good. The writer uh, came up with some really clever ways to incorporate magic into the action, but obviously he wasn't as familiar with magic as I was. So I was, I was trying to beef up the magic uh, all during the, the shooting. For instance, uh, there was a uh, a cloth hood that goes over Templeton's head while he's doing an escape. And this hood turned out to be an important clue in, in one of the murders. And And Michael Knight finds this hood as he's investigating the murder. So he confronts Templeton with it and says, aha, this belongs to you, doesn't it? And in the script, it says, oh, yeah, that's mine. And then the script says he opens up a silver canister, shows it empty, and starts pulling a bunch of hoods out of it, and says, or should I say it's one of the hoods I use, sort of proving that, well, yeah, that's mine, but anybody could have taken it. I have, I have dozens of these hanging around. Well, I read that in the script, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm not, I don't want to do a, 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 a silver tube prop to produce hoods, so I worked out a method to do it that didn't use any props, and I went and showed it to the director on the day we were getting ready to film and he said yeah that's good do that and what it was was i pick up the hood and look at it and go yeah that's my hood and then i dropped the hood leaving both of my hands in full view and i would just reach out into the air pow and catch a hood in the right hand and pow and there's another hood in the left and it's it's a it's a silk handkerchief production but it just appears in your hand like that and then i walked over to michael knight and i reached inside his jacket pulled out a couple of hoods i sort of tweaked the magic a little bit to, to make it a little more visual and a little more interesting and and i think uh, it, it improved the scene yeah. that
1: sounds fantastic i love billy topic both jim and i did uh and it reminded me of I've, I've made a number of low budget movies uh in my life about a half dozen of them and the driving force behind them has almost always been let's get together with some friends and make a movie. And I got the sense that that was kind of part of the DNA of Billy Toppett. Is that right?
2: Well, yes. I just have to correct you on one thing. Billy Toppett was not a low budget movie. It was a no budget movie. <laughs> <laughs> we, we literally just decided, you know, I'm not going to spend any money. Everyone volunteered. So if, if it ever makes any money, I'll go back and pay the actors. And
1: well, the okay. But it. As someone who has done the same thing you've done a half dozen times with no money, the results you got, given the no money status, your sound is exceptional, which is one of the things that's normally a big sign that it's a low budget movie is the sound's not good. You have the recording of the voices is, I know it sounds Mundane, but it's like it's a hard thing to get right. And when you do yeah. get it right, it makes it sound like a big budget movie. the uh, The cinematography is terrific. The editing is fantastic. I don't know if, if you were if you bought the music or if someone did the music, but whatever it was, it fit perfectly and it just sailed along. So for a movie that had no budget, you did an exceptional job of making a real movie.
2: Oh, thank you. Yet, yeah, but you know, you're right. The sound is the one thing you really don't want to. Skip skimp on because that's something you really can't fix and post a lot of the time so we did try to pay attention to to the sound recording as far as the music goes some of the music was from my show that i already owned some of the performance pieces yeah some of the music we used just for the movie and and that was rights free music that that i got from a company called digital juice. Mm-hmm. And they have all different sorts of music and, and it's searchable. So you can find, you know, rock and roll, hard driving music. You can find, you know, instrumentals. You really, they have everything. And so uh, And then there was a couple of pieces that a friend of mine, who's a musician, wrote and recorded for me. And one of the pieces in the in the film, uh, my lead actress, uh, Joelle Rigetti, she had actually recorded an album a couple of years ago, and she gave me the album during the production and said, hey, anything on here you want, you're welcome to use. And I listened to it and there was one track I went, ah, this is perfect for this one scene I have. And it's the, it's the scene where uh, the whole cast is waking up on the second day, brushing their teeth and getting Mm -hmm. ready to go out and and that's actually the lead actress singing.
1: The stuff you picked all really meshed well together.
2: Oh, thank you. And and it was during the post-production process when I really it really struck me as we were editing and, and doing that how much the music adds to a product not just a live show. I already knew that for a live show, but as I was making the film, it really just struck me again, you know, wow, music really does add a whole new dimension to to uh, the movie or a live show.
1: Yeah. So where did where did the idea for the movie come from? Well,
2: I'll tell you exactly where it came from. When I was a kid, there was a television series on TV uh, called The Magician starring Bill Bixby. And now it only lasted one season because the network got a new president that came in and he just you know canceled all his predecessor shows. But it actually did good in the ratings but it only lasted 22 episodes and the magic consultant on the magician was Mark Wilson. And when I, and so when I moved out West, I met Mark Wilson and became friends with him. And then when I did in 1985, when I was shooting Night Rider, guess who they hired to provide all of the large illusions and props for the episode, Mark Wilson. And he was he was the sort of the magic advisor on on that television show. So Mark and I got to hang out for seven days on the set as we were shooting. And he's actually in the episode. You can see you can see shots of him. He's sitting in the audience during one of the opening performances that Austin Templeton does. And I and in fact, I get him up on stage at one point as a as a volunteer. So anyway, one day after filming, Mark and I are going out to dinner and we're in his car and we're driving along. And he says to me, Lance, how do you like doing this work? And I said, what do you mean, Mark? You mean like this episode? He says, yeah. How do you like you know, acting on this TV show? And I said, oh, I'm having the time of my life. I get to do magic. I get to act. I get to work with a stunt man. This This is great. And he says, well, you're doing a good job and you ought to think about Doing more of this, and I said, "More of this? What do you What do you mean?" He says, "You ought to start uh, a notebook. Start keeping some ideas of how you could incorporate your magic into a TV series or a, a movie. You know, like like with the Bill Bixby series." And I thought, "Ah, oh, that's a good idea." So I did. I started writing every time I had an idea about how to use magic within the within the context of a drama series or a, you know, a story, I would write it down. So, so after a few years, I had all these sort of clever things that I came up with to use magic and propelling the story forward or to get out of a s- sticky situation or whatever. And every few years, I would pull that out and I'd go, you know, I'm going to try and go pitch this. And I would go to Los Angeles and set up some meetings and I would try to pitch to, to do a series. Every few years, and we got close a couple of times, but we never, never were able to sell it. But the area I was working in was so similar to things that would pop up on my TV screen later. I, w- I kept thinking, "Man, I've, I've got something here. I just, I just, I just need to." like any kind of magic trick, you know, I get it in my head and it's frustrating. I just, I got to get it out. I got to put it on the stage because it's like in my brain, it's like scratching the inside of my skull. And it's really annoying. By that time, uh, the technology had progressed to the point where we had these high definition cameras that weren't, you know, astronomically expensive. And we had editing software so that somebody on their laptop could put out a professional-looking product. So I finally just said, hey, you know what? I'm going to do this. And I called my buddy, Michael Gudeau, and he came over and we we fleshed out the story. And uh, then we wrote the screenplay within uh, like two or three months. And then we, we eventually just started casting it and, and shot it. Uh, so <laughs> but it all goes back to Bill Bixby. And the magician from
1: nineteen seventy-three. Well, most things do. Most things do go back that. Were you always planning on directing?
2: You know, directing and acting at the same time is really difficult. But I had been doing it all my life. You know, with my live show, and we started in on this thing. And then at some point, I heard an interview with Barbara Streisand, and someone asked her that question, and they said, "Is it difficult?" to act and direct in the same production? And she had a great response. She said, no, it's it's easier that way. That's one less person I have to argue with.
0: <laughs> She's right. That's, uh, so, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. right. So, um, <laughs> uh, talk a little bit about how the movie uh, changed, I- I- you know, from your initial sort of uh, script or plotting and then through shooting and editing. Were there a lot of kind of, oh, let's do this. Oh, that didn't work.
2: Well, here's I'll tell you what. When, when I first had the idea, I didn't I didn't have a real clear idea of the, the tone I wanted to take, you know, as far as I, it could have been a it could have been a drama, it could have been a comedy or whatever. But I started chatting with my buddy, Michael Goudot. Now, Michael worked in my show as Mm -hmm. my special guest star. We've been friends for, you know, since since the uh, mid-80s. And Michael said, this was his idea. So I give him credit. He says, we should write this as a family film. And I said, why is that? He says, because I have two small children. And about two or three times a year i have to take them to the movies and we have to pick a family film and they're always horrible <laughs> and so i'd like to see a good family film yeah something good we could take the kids to see and uh, i said okay that's fine you know that fits magic's always been considered a good uh, family entertainment so we chose to write it as a family friendly movie and as a comedy, but I give credit to Michael for that. And it didn't alter that much once we had the script completed. the The, the idea was, you know, to keep to the script as close as we can within reason. Now, there right. there were some scenes that were improvised, and there were some things that I added during the course. Of the movie, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that we added. The film starts with a dream sequence, Mm -hmm. with uh, Billy floating a lady in the air, and then he wakes up in bed, and and you realize, oh, that was just a dream. He doesn't really have a big Las Vegas show. He's he's a birthday party magician, and that was the first thing we shot. So as we were shooting, I read a book by Robert Rodriguez about his experience shooting Mm -hmm. El Mariachi. Yeah. And that was that was recommended to me by Rory Johnston, who played the the bad guy in my movie. And when I explained to Rory what we were going to do, he said, oh, you're you're doing like a no budget movie like Robert Rodriguez. And I said, who's Robert Rodriguez? He said, oh, he's this director. And he started out by making this movie called El Mariachi. He had seven thousand dollars. That was it. And he made a whole film. And so I, I bought the DVD to watch. I wanted to see what a seven thousand dollar movie looked like. And then I read his book and he had some really interesting advice and thoughts. And he was talking about the, the power of three and which magicians w- will do also where, where you'll have a callback or something keeps popping back up and it happens three times. And in El Mariachi, there's like this sort of dream sequence, but it happens three times. And I started thinking, ah, that's he's got a really good point there. So I started thinking, where else could I insert I need two more dream sequences and I got to find a place to insert them. So we wrote uh, two more dream sequences and found the right place to put them. And and we shot that. But that kind of happened once we started once we started shooting.
0: You know, John, as he's mentioned, has shot some uh, low budget movies here and they're populated largely by friends of John. Um, and I get the sense that, you know, in watching your movie, that these people are all your buddies, that they're that, <laughs> that, that you just yeah. tap all your pals and say, exactly. to together. And That's it's exactly. so much to see. But are, are, so
2: is everybody in the movie? Uh, you didn't
0: cast this. I mean, it, it, would, these are all your friends.
2: Oh, yeah. They're all my friends. The only time there were people in the movie really that I didn't know up until that point was was you know, like extras in the restaurant, you know, we would just ask people, do you have any friends that you can come over and be background actors? And, and a lot of them are my friends. And like the birthday party scene, those kids, those are all kids of friends. It's like, hey, if you got kids, bring them over
1: to, to my stage manager's house. It really looks like you guys are having fun. Throughout the throughout the whole movie, it is. I don't mean to denigrate it in any way. It's a really goofy movie. It it is surprisingly silly in a really it's, fun fun way.
2: It's a silly it's a silly movie, and a lot of that stuff. Also, I have to you know Michael Goudreau is uh, everybody loves Michael and loves his comedy, and kids especially love him. So that's we wanted to go for something. For instance, when we were writing the the date scene. You know that was a silly scene, and they were doing the the game with the, the milk, the little milk mm-hmm. containers, and and Michael said, "Listen, when I take my kids to a movie, when it gets to the romantic, the date scene, they are bored. They are like, oh, they're falling asleep, going, oh, when is this over? So let's beef this up with something silly." And I was, "Hey, great, that sounds great." So again, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff was just the purpose of the movie was to keep keep everybody's interest,
1: and that's probably something you've learned from being on stage forever is oh yeah feeling when the audience might be getting bored and being ahead of them yeah yeah you want to you
2: don't want to get to that point you want to you want to keep it moving is your friend michael in the movie yes he is in the movie he's one of the jugglers
0: okay yeah well, the, the taller one or the shorter one
2: the shorter one okay That's that's he he was my co-writer on the screenplay and also co-executive producer.
0: You know, there's a line in the movie where they talk about you personally on stage doing your magic and then your persona off stage. Uh, Talk to me just a little bit about that difference. And was that sort of a convention just for this movie or is that? a Tell me about that.
2: Well, that's pretty common uh, thing with uh, stage performers and magicians. That most of us are, are one person off stage, and a different, you know, a better version of ourselves on stage, more confident version. And a more uh elegant version and a more witty version of ourselves. So, yeah, I think that's a I think that's a pretty common th- thing amongst across the board with, with all magicians or jugglers or stand-up comics.
1: So, so what was your process in creating the Lance Burton image on stage that we're also familiar with?
2: Well, that's a that's a, you know, a 40-year-long <laughs> Process, you know. When I was a kid, I would see the pictures of Channing Pollock, and I said, "Oh, I want to be that guy," you know. Uh, and I think everybody starts like that, you know. I was a big, I, I was a big Bill Bixby fan because of The Magician, and of course, you know, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, and then The Incredible Hulk. But you know, when I was a teenager, I would go to the barber shop and I'd say, "Cut my hair like Bill Bixby," and they'd look at me, and go, "What?"
1: Well, <laughs> oh, better that than Lou Ferrigno. It's yeah, exactly. better. It's Bill Bixby. So you're talking about creating your stage persona. And like I mentioned earlier, our big theme this season has been, how did, how do you create a, a better magician? Is there one thing you think magicians are currently doing that they should look at doing better?
2: Well, that's a really good question. My advice, you know, for the past 25, 30 years, I've been the sponsor of the teen seminar, which is at the currently at the International Brotherhood of Magicians uh, at their annual convention. So one of the things I try to emphasize in talking to young magicians is the power of repeat performances. People look at my career, and my first time on Johnny Carson was October 28th, 1981. And I sort of burst onto the scene from that appearance. And that led to me going to Las Vegas and getting my first job there and and so on and so on. And there's this common misconception that that's when my career started on that Johnny Carson appearance. But what they don't understand is there were a thousand performances leading up to that appearance. Uh, I started doing Birds and cards and candles and zombie. When I was, you know, twelve years old, fourteen years old, and I counted them up. I did uh, over a thousand performances of that act before I got to the Tonight Show, and that's really what it takes to put together a professional act. That's your. That should be your goal: is to get a thousand shows under your belt. And it's not just me. Uh, over the years, this is a question I've always been interested in. So whenever I meet a great magician, that's what I ask them, you know, how did you learn to do your act? Where did you perform your act? So for instance, Jeff McBride, Jeff and I met when we were like 23 years old, 24 years old, but we had been hearing about each other since we were teenagers. You know, I lived in Kentucky and Jeff was in New York, but we would hear about each other at the magic conventions and see pictures of each other. So it was like two gunslingers meeting, you know, when we finally crossed paths and uh, we became good friends. And I asked Jeff and Jeff had a little club in New York called Club Ibis, and he would go there. And he would do two or three shows a night, banging out his act, show after show after show, year after year. And he was only getting paid, you know, a very little amount to go there. And, you know, the the other magicians in New York, Jeff always says the other magicians in New York would make fun of him because they're saying, Jeff, you know, you're getting $50 a week or $100 a week to perform at this little club. I get $100 a show. And Jeff always says, and you know what? They're still doing that. They're still getting $100 a show. But every, every magician, every great magician I've ever talked to has a very similar story. Eugene Berger, you know, he banged out thousands of shows at the restaurants, bars there in Chicago. Really everybody you can think of that's a great magician, they'll they'll tell you
1: a similar story. Yeah. We we had Jeff McBride on a couple episodes ago and he said something that stuck with me and will stick with me forever and will, I think, be part of an upcoming Eli Marks book in which he, he was referring to martial arts. And he said, I'm not afraid of the man who knows a thousand kicks. I'm afraid of the man who knows one kick and has done it a thousand times. And that <laughs> seems like such a good, thing for magicians to think about is not learning a thousand tricks, but learn one trick and do it a thousand times.
2: Yes. The the one I always like is that the definition of an amateur magician versus a professional magician is this. An amateur magician does different tricks every day for the same audience. And a professional magician does the same tricks every day for a different audience. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Can I go back to
0: Billy Toppett just for a second? Sure. I just, at the very end in the credits, there's some very clever, funny little teases about the possibility of a <laughs> sequel. And, uh, and it, I was sort of like, gosh, I hope there is a sequel because this, kind of, this could be a series. <laughs> yeah. uh, is there talk of that? Have you at, doing at, one?
1: And I will yeah. say, I'm going to speak for my, uh, my podcast partner here. We are standing by ready to help you if you want to do yeah, a absolutely. sequel. Absolutely. I yeah. drop everything. <laughs>
2: Billy Toppett part two, The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Billy Toppett part two, The Search for Spock. <laughs> I tell you, that was just me on, on this computer, by the way, that I'm talking to you on, getting at the end of the editing process and doing the credits and it's just and just going, oh, this will be funny. <laughs> just me, just me just making up, making up silly stuff.
1: And, and the, the image of you doing that, of sitting on a computer and editing, do you have the filmmaking bug now? Are you going to, it doesn't have to be a sequel to Billy Top it but.
2: I, I've enjoyed, I enjoyed, uh, here's here's, here's, the, here's the thing that I enjoyed the most on the whole process was learning to edit. Uh, my good buddy, Bob Massey, was our director, of photographer and our editor, but. In the process of editing, I would go over to his house and we would work on it. And then he'd have to go do something. I was like, ah, do we have to stop? And he said, one day he said, you know, I can I can give you the software. I, I bought this and I, I can put it on two computers legally. So if you want to, I'll show you how. I went, yeah. So I went out, I bought this, this computer right here that I'm talking to you on. And I thought, okay, I got my I got my normal laptop. That's for my everyday stuff, and this is going to be my editing laptop. And I put the stuff on, and I started to learn how to to edit. And Bob was there to help me, show me. I really loved it. I really, really uh, loved the process. And a lot of it is very similar to magic. I'll give you a good example of that. There's a scene at the end of the movie where the they've opened the big show. And uh, I do the sawing, uh, sawing a couple into eight pieces. So we got the two, the boy and the girl, and they get sawed up, and they come out of the boxes at the end, and the, the boy's wearing the girl's clothes, and, the, and, and they chase each other off stage, And then they run past the camera, and then the second shot, you see them run into view in the wings. And then they have a scene in the wings. Well, we shot the, the first part with the doing the trick and then running past the camera we shot that at the monte carlo hotel in 2010 and then the, the scene in the wings we shot in 2013 on the other side of town at uh, Rory Johnson's church that he went to. And they allowed us to shoot there. So the two scenes that are s- supposed to be at the same time were shot three years apart, different yeah. locations. And as we were shooting the first one, I knew in my mind what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted him to run past the camera and then I would pick it up. And the rest of the cast hadn't even been cast yet, by the way. I didn't even know who the other actors were going to be, but I knew there was a scene over there. So as they run past, I'll pick it up whenever we get to that. Three years later, we shoot the thing. Now I'm editing it together. So now I take the music from the first part of the shot, this playing during the trick, and the audience reaction. Mm -hmm. You get the audience applauding and cheering, and they run past the camera. We go to the second shot, but you still hear the audio. You still hear the music playing and you hear me out on stage going thank you and the audience applauding and so now when you put it all together it's like it's seamless no one yep. no one knows yep. that, that those were shot 3 years apart it's 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 like a magic trick it's it's an illusion there's a good example of how the sound helps enhance the illusion yep and and there are a few there are a few magic tricks that we do on stage that sound is a very big part of the illusion
1: you know you uh, i don't know at what point in the process you read robert rodriguez's book but he you know he based el mariachi on what he had available he wrote yes. the script based on the town the bar yes. the tortoise the dog all of that yeah um you seem to have done a very similar thing in that yes. you had yes. i'm guessing you already had some footage you on stage or it was a relatively easy thing to get for an average person that's a really hard thing to get but for exactly. you that would be
2: Exactly. And I had to and I had to shoot all that before the show closed because the show right. we were getting ready to close the show. So we captured all of that, all of the stuff that had to be shot in the in the theater. We captured that.
1: But for the average person writing right. a script to have written that scene, you go, well, you can't shoot that. I mean, well, Of course. The lights alone in the ceiling are. A million but times I, more than your budget.
2: But I, and I was well aware that I had this, you know, I had this opportunity that we'd written it into the script and it's like, okay, I got to shoot this now. Because if I wait another two months, it's all going to be gone. Exactly.
1: And, and I felt the same with the, the scenes in the casino, which would be, I think, normally a difficult thing to do, but you obviously had a relationship and we were able uh, to make those happen. You
2: know, the casino scenes, those were all shot afterwards. That was my buddy, John Woodrum who, who, who owned this little casino called the Klondike. I talked to several, we wanted it to be a locals type casino. And I yeah. talked to a few of the casinos and some of them were, were like, yeah, we're, we'd let you come in here and shoot. We have a coffee shop. How how many days do you need it? How, how much? And I'm like going to myself, I don't know how long this is going to take to shoot. I've never shot a movie before. And then finally I went over to see my buddy John And I said, John, I've got this movie I'm shooting and it takes place. Some of the action takes place in the casino and there's a coffee shop and you've got a coffee shop. And what would you think about us shooting here in your and he and he looks at me and says, yeah, whatever you want. Come on in. It's like, what? That's what Come you need. Anytime. It's like, okay, I found this I found our location.
1: You you are a low budget filmmaker at heart. You got all the tricks that are necessary to be good at this. And you did it on your first movie. That's that's exceptional.
2: It was a fun process and it, it, it's not dissimilar to shooting a, a, a television special or a TV show but it is a little different there's there's obviously magic in it but you know there's hmm. also the whole the second element of the story and and doing the scene and the acting and getting all the actors uh, all on the same page
1: and speaking of the actors in order I was thrilled to see our friend Louie Anderson uh, yes. in there. He was a Twin Cities guy who I knew back when he was here, and I had the good fortune of working with him a couple times in the corporate arena. And to see Johnny Thompson obviously yeah. having so much fun, uh, it was just great. And then to see uh, Mac kind of turn up, uh, yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but he does yeah. turn up. Mac,
2: Mac turns up there near the end of the film. It was great fun being able to work with Johnny, to be able to direct your mentor was yeah. a really special thing. And that was just so much fun working with Johnny. And he was just so, so good uh, in, in this role. And well, he's
1: such a good he was such a good actor. He yes. really had that ability to to turn it up. And Pam, too. Pam. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pam was in there as well. It was just so much fun to see them just pop up like that.
0: Uh, a delight. The whole thing was from start to finish. Uh, a Delight. I watched it by myself after my wife went to bed and I just was giggling through the whole thing.
2: Thank you. Here's my favorite story from the whole process. I had this idea to do the trick with the, the tele on the telephone uh, the wizard that that anybody that is amateur magician you know knows the trick. Well, Uh, When Michael and I were coming up with a storyline, I had this idea of using the wizard as as part of the kidnapping thing to to find out where the assistant was being held. In order to do that, you know, of course, I had to show what the wizard was and sort of. So my idea was the reason I wanted to include that was I wanted kids, especially to be able to watch the movie. And then after the movie, take something away. I wanted them to be able to perform the wizard for their yeah. friends. And after we had our premiere, my my wardrobe lady from, from the Monte Carlo, and she also uh, did wardrobe on the movie. She called me like a week later, her and her husband, uh, her, her stepdaughter, who was in like junior high school at that time, uh, she called to tell me that that the little girl had gone to school the next day and had performed the wizard for her friends. (laughs) And when I heard that, I was like, yes, yes. Touchdown.
1: (laughs) Mission accomplished.
2: Mission accomplished. That's exactly what I wanted. I wanted kids to go and actually perform a magic trick for their friends
0: that trick my brother is a magician and he used to do that with my dad so when i was a kid the phone would ring and my dad would say you know clubs hearts Okay, and and, and so he brought back so many great memories for me But I really liked how you then turned it around and used it as a plot device. So yes. it wasn't just a sort of a throwaway. It sort yeah. of was like, oh, well, that, that dovetails so nicely into the whole in, story.
2: It's integral to the story. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. And those are those are especially the kind of things I like with uh, magic in uh, movies or TV shows, you know, where you can take something and 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 bring it back in later
1: in a practical, use it as a practical device. Yeah. Well, we could talk with you all day on this, but I promised Edelin we would keep it short. But we do (laughs) want to end with one. I want to end with one key question because this is the last episode of season two. It's the uh, last time we'll be talking about the bullet catch book in depth. Uh, After this interview, the listener will hear the final chapter of the bullet catch. So we wonder, what has been your experience with the bullet catch trick and your thoughts on it in general? Well. I never did the bullet
2: catch. Uh, I've seen a couple of people do it over the years and, and I've seen it, you know, on television uh, demonstrated. And as we know, there's been a number of uh, magicians that died uh, doing the bullet catch, probably the most famous being Billy Robinson, uh, Chung Ling Su. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it's, it could be a dangerous thing. I never went in that direction with the bullet catch. And it's the same reason I never did the razor blade tricks, the, like the needle trick. But you take no. razor blades, and for people that don't know, you show that they're sharp, and you swallow them, and then you thread, and then you pull them out of your mouth, and they're, they're threaded on the thread. And I started working on it, because I, I saw Richie do it, and he had a really dramatic uh, version of it. And I started working on it. And I was working on it for about a month. And then finally, one day I thought, if I do this, I'm not going to work on something. And then not, you know, I, I was doing a lot of television shows, TV specials and stuff. So I was like, do I really want to do this on TV? Do I want impressionable kids to see this? And then, you know, God forbid, try to mimic it or something. So I thought, ah, if that had happened, I would feel terrible. I would that would mess me up and so I just okay that's it I'm not doing this trick and I stopped and I never performed it and I never I never finished it and I kind of felt the same way about the bullet catch that yeah. you know I don't I don't want to tell anybody else what to do but if I did that and something happened I mean I I couldn't live with myself I couldn't I, that would mess me up I would I would never be able to go on stage again
1: You know, what a great way to end this season on the bullet catch to have arguably the the greatest magician of our generation say, if I did the bullet catch and something happened, I couldn't live with that. Yeah. That that, and the way he put it, that would mess me up. I'd never go on stage again. And that's absolutely what Uncle Harry has been saying to Eli throughout the entire book. And and here's Lance Burton echoing that beautifully uh, as we reach the end of this season.
0: It um uh, my favorite thing, of course, was the Barbara Streisand quote. It's just one less person for me to argue with. Uh, That that made me laugh out loud, and I I I chuckle about it every time I think about
1: it. What I really loved hearing was the idea of uh, using the wizard trick. to not only as a plot point, a clever plot point, uh, that any screenwriter would be happy to steal. Absolutely. Uh, but also as a a way to teach a trick, uh, and and for him to hear that uh, kids are actually learning that trick after seeing the movie, I'm sure, was exactly what he was looking for. Yeah,
0: very fun. Very, very fun. And it brings back all those uh, great memories of my childhood uh, when the phone would ring and my dad would become <laughs> <Yeah>. Mr. <laughs> God rest his soul.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. So anyway... Um, And so great to end out the season with that little comment about the bullet catch and that uh, it's the same reason he never did the razor blade trick. He didn't want impressionable kids to mimic it. Mm -hmm. So he's doing in Billy Toppett something he does want them to mimic and uh, studiously avoiding uh, anything he doesn't want them to mimic, which Mm is uh, him in a nutshell. He was so charming and so much fun to chat with and so down to earth. In the show notes, I've got some YouTube Links to the trailer for Billy Toppet. Uh There's also a scene from the movie that includes uh, Twin Cities' own Louis Anderson. And uh, kind of a fun recap of the movie's premiere. It looks like they rented out a theater in Vegas and everybody came and and they uh, they watched uh, the opening night, of it, which I'm sure was really, really fun to see that on a big screen after all. You know, he worked on it for three or four years to see that up on the big That's screen. That's the way
0: you do it, you know. I mean, I, when you talk, talk about low-budget films, it's almost never a straight line it is it's, it's a zigzaggy line.
1: he did he did find the the similarity between uh magic and movie editing and about making things appear that aren't actually happening making them appear as if they're happening which is uh, you know i think we've made it very clear to mr burton that he should go out and make another movie and that we would be more than happy to jump on board and help in any way because uh
0: absolutely i'll, I'll drive yeah, you'll he try really
1: hey
0: let's just jump into this episode's chapter of the bullet catch this is going to be if i've done the math chapter 26 the final chapter it is indeed it. can you bring us up to date though just get us i work. will
1: well there's a lot has happened in chapter 25 eli almost uh, got shot and thrown off the balcony by dylan he was saved mm-hmm. By homicide detective Fred Hutton, and I'm sure that's going to come back to haunt him. Uh, a lot of stuff were, was explained, so that uh, it's that you know it's that chapter in a mystery novel where all the pieces come together. But uh, I'd like to think that. Uh, All the pieces are pretty fair, and that uh, nothing was cheated on, and it all was reasonable. And then Trish is taken into custody, and uh, Eli uh, looks up uh, from the parking lot at the balcony he was about to be thrown off of and realizes he's standing just about where he would land if he had been thrown off the balcony. And he takes a step to the left, which brings us right into chapter 26.
0: The Bullet Catch. An Eli Marks Mystery, Chapter 26 Man, she played you like a banjo. Played me like a banjo. You know, like someone who was really good on the banjo. Wasn't Earl Scruggs good on the banjo? I think so, yes. Well, she played you like Earl Scruggs played the banjo, Jake concluded. "'smiling broadly at his late-to-arrive analogy. "'I was taken in, yes,' I replied flatly. "'She fooled me. "'Suckered! One born every minute,' Jake laughed, "'and then did a quick flourish with his card deck, "'producing four kings, two in each hand. "'You still playing with magic?' I asked, "'steering the conversation in a more appealing direction. "'I was putting away the tricks I had demonstrated earlier that morning.' placing them in their designated spots inside the glass display case. Jake was leaning on the case, absently repeating his card flourish. Well, I spent so much time learning this crap, I'd hate to let it all go. You never know when someone's going to want to see a trick at a bar or party. The bell over the door rang, and we both turned to see an older, bearded man step into the shop. He looked lost, and I was sure he was about to ask for change for the bus. Harry, adding receipts by the cash register, glanced up and greeted him with a smile. "'Can I do something for you today, sir?' "'Yes,' he said hesitantly, sounding like he didn't use his voice much. "'I was looking for some silks, if you have any. "'Nothing fancy.' "'I have exactly the thing,' Harry replied, gesturing toward a display at the far end of the counter across the room. "'Well made, not fancy.' "'Real workers you'll use for years and years,' he continued with his sales pitch at a quieter tone as the older customer slowly followed him to the far counter. Jake gave him a board once over, then turned back to me. "'So how many people did she kill? Three, was it?' "'She may not have actually killed anyone,' I said, lowering my voice, in the hope Jake might follow suit.' It sounds like Dylan shot Howard Washburn and drowned Sylvia Washburn. I'm not sure who shot the guy they passed off as Dylan. And who was that guy anyway? They're still working on that. Deirdre says the theory is it was someone from the homeless shelter where Trish worked. Somehow, she coaxed him into meeting her out on the running path in the middle of the night. I'd meet her on a running path in the middle of the night, Jake said, winking broadly. I don't doubt it. And then, blam! Something like that. I pulled the sliding door shut on the display case and began to straighten up the counter behind me. And then she goes down to the morgue to identify the body and she tells the cops with a straight face that it's her husband. Wicked. Wicked girl. Jake grinned and flourished the Four Kings again. I was getting annoyed with the flourish. And with him. Yeah, I guess that's what she did. So when do you head back to L.A.? He stopped in mid-flourish and consulted his watch. My flight's in a couple of hours. I just wanted to stop by and thank you for your help on the movie. No problem. It was fun. And different. It was that. He looked over his shoulder and then leaned across the counter. I also want to let Harry know there are no hard feelings about, you know, how we destroyed the Terry Alexander mystery and all. I'm sure he'll be glad to hear it. Would you tell him, you know, after I leave? Why? He's right here. You're right here. You're both right here. Jake glanced over his shoulder. Harry had returned to the cash register and was ringing up the customer's purchase. The two were chatting quietly. Jake turned back to me. I'd rather you tell him. Why? Jake leaned in again. Because he scares the hell out of me, he finally whispered. I oh, Don't be a wimp, I snapped, pulling the cards from his hand and giving him a hard shove. He stumbled a bit, righted himself, and then shambled over toward Harry. Thank you, the older customer was saying as Harry handed him a small bag. I really can't thank you enough. My pleasure, Harry said, absolutely, my pleasure. The old man nodded at Harry and then at Jake as he passed him on his way to the door. Jake nodded in return. ''How's it going?'' ''Fine,'' the man said with a smile. ''It's going just fine.'' He made his way through the door as Jake turned and addressed Harry. I crossed the room to make sure I could hear every blessed word. ''Well, Mr. Marks,'' Jake began trying to sound as casual as he could, ''I'm heading back to L.A.'' ''Never liked L.A.,'' Harry said as he closed the cash register drawer. ''It takes forever to drive anywhere.'' And there's nothing there when you get to where you were going. Jake was clearly stumped by this response. He turned to me for help, but I merely smiled and leaned on the counter. I suppose that's true, Jake continued. Anyway, thanks for letting us borrow Eli while we were making the movie. He was a great help to us. His time is his own, Harry said. He looked at Jake blankly. "'but there was a twinkle in his eyes "'and I could tell he was enjoying playing "'with this poor, blathering actor. "'I suppose it is,' Jake said, "'but he was very helpful in getting my portrayal "'of Terry Alexander right.' "'Terry Alexander?' Harry said. "'Were you playing Terry Alexander?' "'Yes,' Jake said, "'starting to get frustrated with this circular conversation. "'The movie was about Terry Alexander.' Really? Well, you should have said something to him when you had the opportunity. To whom? Jake was nearing a breaking point. To Terry Alexander, Harry said as he pointed toward the door. He just walked out of the shop. Jake was out the door in a flash and then back a few seconds later. He's gone, he said, shaking his head. Disappeared! I once knew a really clever magician, Harry recited, to no one in particular. He could walk down the street and just like that, turn into a bar. This took a moment to settle in, and then Jake yelped and ran out the door again. What are you doing? I asked Harry. He was grinning widely. Just having a little fun. Jake burst through the door again, this time looking winded. Nope, he's not in the bar either. I never said he was, Harry replied as he headed back to straighten up some silks he'd left out on the counter. That guy was Terry Alexander, I asked, seeing Jake was still trying to catch his breath. Yes, he was. Terry Alexander is alive. It would appear so. Why did Terry Alexander come to see you? He wanted to buy some silks, Harry replied, but then he noticed my expression and added... And thank me. Thank you for what? For giving him his life back? Or his death back? Something like that. To be honest, I didn't follow the conversation as closely as I might have. Jake had caught his breath and stepped forward. So, he was alive, and you knew it this whole time? Harry had finished folding the silks he hadn't sold. He started placing them back in their respective boxes. As soon as I saw the video, I immediately recognized what he was trying to do. The poor fellow had obviously gone to great lengths to fake his own death. When I saw that, I felt the least I could do would be to help him stay dead. Harry carefully replaced each of the boxes into their slots on the wall behind the counter. Jake looked to me with a frustrated grimace, and I shook my head. The only way to get the whole story would be to let Harry tell it at his own pace. Try to goose him, and he'd clam up for sure. It was clear this movie of yours was going to reopen the whole can of worms, and if there was any mystery to how he had died, that would stir things up even further. I figured if we took the mystery out of it, people wouldn't care anymore. And Terry Alexander could go away and do whatever he wanted to do when he stopped wanting to be a magician. But why did you keep this a secret? That was going to be my next question, but Jake beat me to it. Because, my boy, that's what magicians do, Harry said solemnly. We keep secrets. And if Terry Alexander wants to disappear and live a normal life, Who am I to deny him that? He gave Jake a serious look. And you, young man, are now a magician, which means you are also bound to keep this secret. Is that clear? Jake nodded slowly. I can't hear you, Harry said sternly. Is that clear? Yes, yes, sir, it is, Jake sputtered. It's clear. "'Good.' Harry finished replacing the silks and headed toward the back stairs. "'Eli, I'm gonna go up and have an early dinner,' he said over his shoulder as he walked. "'Do you mind locking up when the time comes?' "'No problem.' We watched him cross the shop, moving slower than usual. I think Max's death was still weighing on him and probably reminding him of the loss of Aunt Alice two years before." He got to the base of the stairs, pulled back the curtain, and then turned around. Have a nice flight back to L.A., Jake, he said with a gentle smile. Say hello to the boys at the Magic Castle, and don't be a stranger. And with that, he disappeared behind the curtain. After Jake left for the airport, I pulled out the list I'd made of the many things that needed to be done around the shop. Since they each appeared to be of equal importance... I ignored all of them and instead spent a frustrating hour or so once again trying to perfect my very imperfect center deal move. After a while, each attempt was more pitiful than the last, and I was about to call it a day when the phone rang. "'Chicago magic,' I said into the phone as I set the damn deck of cards aside. "'Ah, Mandrake,' a thin voice said through the receiver. "'Back at work after your bump on the head?' "'That shows a good spirit.' "'Yes, I am,' I said slowly. "'How are you, Mr. Lime?' "'Well,' he said, "'all is well and right with the world for today.' "'Good,' I said. "'That's good.' I didn't know what else to say, and he didn't seem to be in any hurry himself, so we each sat quietly on our respective ends of the phone for several awkward seconds." I was glad to see the police detective responded so promptly to my call. He finally said, Both Harpo and I had come to fear he wouldn't get to you in time. But apparently, he did. So it was you who placed the anonymous call? Well, I felt I had to step in. It appeared things were heating up, and I would have hated to see such a talented performer such as yourself An innocent bystander really come to harm. Thank you, I guess, I finally said, not sure of the correct response in this situation. So did you know all along Dylan wasn't dead? It seemed the most likely answer. In murder, the simplest answer is usually the right one. That's often true in magic, I added. Is that a fact, he said thoughtfully. Is that a fact? And that's why you sent me the poster for the movie Laura? To give me a hint? Just a little push in the right direction. Sometimes people you think are dead aren't as dead as you think. Another long pause. I wasn't sure of the best way to end the call, but a glance down the counter presented an answer. Oh, I almost forgot, I said quickly. I remembered the name of that skin cream, the one magicians use for dry skin, I added, hoping to spark his memory on the topic. Marvelous, he said, his voice rising an octave. Let me just write this down. I could hear some movements and mumblings on the other end of the phone, and then his voice returned. There, I'm all set, he said. It's called paper cream fingertip moistener, I said pulling out a container and reading the name. "'Paper cream fingertip moistener,' he repeated back to me. "'Yes, that's the stuff. I think it'll do the trick for you.' "'Excellent. Thank you, young Mandrake. And where would I best purchase this product?' "'Oh, we have it right here in the store,' I said, and immediately wished I could pull the words back out of the phone. "'And online,' I added quickly. Online might be the best route to go in your case. There are much better deals online, with free shipping and such. I was babbling at this point, but he didn't seem to hear or care. Right there in the store, you say. That's good to know. It will give Harpo and me a reason to take a drive. Thank you, Mandrake. You remain my favorite magician. There was a click on the phone line, and he was gone. I held the receiver for several frozen seconds and then replaced it gingerly back onto the cradle for fear that it might ring again while still in my hand. At that moment, the bell above the door tinkled, and I almost did the same. I slowly looked up, terrified the pale and skeletal Mr. Lime was standing in the doorway. I gasped involuntarily when I saw who it was. It was Megan. Sorry to startle you, she said, her hand still on the door handle. Is this a bad time? No, no, this is the best time, I said, stepping out from behind the counter and approaching her quickly. I stopped about two feet away, not sure how close I was allowed to get in the present state of our relationship. You look like you've seen a ghost. No, I said, shaking my head. He was on the phone. There was a ghost on the phone? Sort of. She looked at me for a long moment. I just stopped by to make sure you were okay. Franny said you got hit on the head. How did Franny know? Megan shrugged. Franny knows everything. Plus, she talks to Harry. Franny and Harry talk? On the phone, all the time. They're like phone buddies. I smiled, thinking about it. Well, good for him. Actually... I think it's good for both of them. She looked up at me and then reached up and gently touched my head with her hand. Does that hurt? I took her hand and then shook my head. Not anymore. She put her hand on my heart. Does that hurt? All the time. I've missed you, she said softly. Me too, I said. I mean... I've missed you, too. I haven't missed me. She smiled. I understand. She looked down at my hand, which was holding her hand. I'm tired of being on a break, she said, still looking at our hands. Yeah, it's getting old, I said. She glanced over the curtain at the back of the shop. You want to go upstairs? She said, looking away shyly. I haven't been up there for a while. You were just there two weeks ago, I said, then stopped. She was shaking her head. I wasn't there. We were on a break, she said firmly. Oh, that's right. You weren't there. Sure, let's go. I'll lock up first. I let go of her hand and flip the lock on the front door. When I turned back, she was looking at me quizzically. What's wrong? How are you doing on the heights thing? You mean the suicidal scared of heights thing? She nodded. How do you know about that? Franny told me. Harry must have told her. I shook my head. I haven't told Harry about it. So how does Franny know about it? Megan shrugged. Franny knows everything. I couldn't argue with that. It's coming along okay, I said. My therapist has me on a program. Every day I climb a little bit higher until I'm no longer afraid. Megan stepped closer and took my hand again. Well, your bedroom is two flights up. Is that a good goal for today? I think that would be perfect. I took her hand and we headed for the stairs. And you know what? For the first time in a long time, I wasn't afraid of heights.
1: All right. That's the end of the bullet catch. Unbelievable. That's two books. That's two books. It's two books we've got done. For those of you keeping score at home about references to the book and the movie, The Long Goodbye, the appearance of Terry Alexander uh, in the shop in kind of disguised form was uh, inspired by uh, the appearance of Terry Lennox in the last chapter of The Long Goodbye and I also was able to work in one of my favorite Corbett Monica jokes about uh, Corvette Monica being a, a comedian from the 50s and 60s, a Borscht Belt kind of comedian who said my uncle was a magician. He could walk down the street and just like that turn into a bar. Hello. Hello. Anyway, that brings us to the end of season two, but we still have a little discussion because we're going to, in season three, we're going to jump ahead and we're going to listen to stories from the eighth book in the Eli Marks series, The Self-Working Trick. Unbelievable. What are we going to do about the, the, because this was two and we're going to eight. So three, four, five, six, seven. There's five other books. Yeah, we might come back. We'll see. I wanted to do more focused interviews on specific topics. And I thought by having the dozen short stories that make up the self-working trick book, that would give us the opportunity for 12 very specific interviews. Anyway, so that's why we're jumping ahead to the eighth book, The Self Working Trick.
0: That's an award winning book. Am I right
1: about that, Mr. Cashguard? You know, it is. I'm not one to toot my horn very often, but I will say that it was awarded the Best Adult Fiction Award from the Minnesota Library Foundation. Uh, and I got great? to go to a convention of librarians and uh, receive an award. So, yes, it was. Boy, I bet you that was a party, huh? You, you know what? Ah, don't believe the stereotypes. <laughs> Don't believe the stereotypes. I don't uh, at
0: all. It must have been a knockdown, drag out evening of fun
1: with a bunch of librarians. The police were called on more than one occasion. (laughs) Anyway, so a little bit of housekeeping about how this is going to work next season, uh, because each story is a little longer than a normal chapter, and they don't normally offer logical places to break them. We'll, We'll just do probably one story per episode. That means it'll be 12 episodes and 24, but they're all going to be longer than usual. Uh, And each guest will be talking about something specific in that chapter. And in some cases, the interview will take place after the reading of the chapter so that what the guy or gal is talking about will make sense. And the best news for you, Jim, there will be no chapter numbers, just episode numbers.
0: Hey, it's my understanding that there will be no math. There'll be in no season math season three. in
1: season three. So
0: That's hooray, hurrah. Bad. Yeah, indeed. I, uh, I couldn't be happier with that. And since this episode was with Mr. Lance Burton, it really makes sense
1: to kick off season three with his good pal, Mac King. How about yeah. that? That's what I call symmetry. The first story we're listening to in season three is The Invisible Assistant, which some of you may remember we, I believe, played in season one. We're going to do it again because in that story, Eli does his version of the classic card trick, Cards Across.
0: Yeah. And since uh, Eli's version really pays homage to Max' classic cloak... Of invisibility. It really makes sense to chat with Mac about where the trick came from and how it evolved for him over the years. And it, I'll tell you what uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you have any plans of being anywhere near Las Vegas, make sure that you get to see Mac's show. It's it is fabulous. A delight yeah. From start to finish, you can do it with your grandmother, your five year old, and the Pope. And there will be nothing that will offend you, but you will laugh uproariously from start to finish.
1: And you will you might not even notice how great the magic is because you're laughing so much, but the magic exactly. is just as good as the comedy. Yeah, yeah, really. That's, so anyway, check out the show notes for clips uh, from Billy Toppett, uh, along with the trailer and a nice video about the movie's premiere. And we will see you uh, in the next episode in season three. Season three. Look forward to it. I am. Goodbye, John. Goodbye, Goodbye everybody. John. Stay safe. Season three is coming. Stay with us. All right.
0: Did I oversell it?
1: No, I don't think so. I think I should start recording. Ah.
0: <laughs> This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Alberts Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S mysteries.com. And thanks for listening.